Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, folks across the street and those of you who are joining us online. Grab a Bible or whatever device you use for your Bible and go with me to Revelation chapter 2. And as was mentioned earlier, we're going to continue this sermon series called Dear Church. The tagline is seven letters to seven churches. And we're looking today at the fourth letter, which is the letter to the church in Thyatira. Good to be home after being gone for a week. Sandy and I were in Texas last week. We went to celebrate her mother's 82nd birthday. We visited her mom and dad and celebrated that birthday. She was able to be there with both of her sisters. That doesn't happen very often, so it's a special occasion. Usually it's our fault because we're the ones who live so far away. So that was a great blessing for grandma to have all of her girls there for her birthday. But what a great weekend you had at Mount Pleasant last week, and I'm just thrilled with all the things that I heard and I read. Uh, This message today is honestly, this is a very serious message today, very serious and sobering passage of Scripture. I feel a little overwhelmed, honestly, this weekend by the seriousness of this, but it's so very, very important, and I hope you'll see that as we get through the text today. Let's start by talking a little bit just about the church. I'm sure that all of us who are here this morning understand that there are all different kinds of churches in the world today, right? Everyone say, right. All different kinds of churches. And you know, there, are, there are churches with different denominational backgrounds. There are churches with different styles of worship, different doctrinal convictions, different programming. You can go on and on and on. There's no shortage of things that make churches different in the world today. But what we need to understand is that regardless of the differences, there are some fundamental things that have to be evident In all churches, there are some fundamental things that all churches have to have in common. I'm talking about Christian churches. I'm talking about Bible-believing, preaching, teaching churches. I'm talking about evangelical churches. And one of the things that all of these churches need to have in common is holiness. Holiness. If the church is going to have any kind of impact on the world today, then it needs to be holy. It needs to be filled with people who are regularly pursuing holiness. And when that happens, when holiness is a mark of the church, then sin is exposed and sin is confronted. Sadly, in our day and age, just like in every day and age throughout time, that's not always been the case with the church. And it certainly was not the case for the church in Thyatira that Jesus wrote this fourth letter to in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. But we need to talk about it today. Let me remind you this morning that I told you from the beginning that there are two words that we have to associate with every one of these letters just by way of context, and those words are historical and perennial. And we use the word historical because these seven churches represent seven literal historical churches. This is not figurative or symbolic language. These are real churches that existed in Asia Minor in ancient days. We use the word perennial because the issues that are dealt with in these letters, whether they're good or bad issues, are indicative of the same kinds of issues that all churches have dealt with on some level through all generation. And what we're dealing with here in the church in Thyatira is really one of the worst. Everyone say worst. Worst. It's one of the worst issues or realities that can be found in a church. I'm talking about the tolerance, the practice and the tolerance of sin in the church. This church 
this letter, excuse me, to the church in Thyatira actually has a lot in common with the letter to the church in Pergamum that Andrew taught about last week. Here's the difference. What had begun on this level in the church in Pergamum, the sin and the toleration of sin that had begun on this level in the church in Pergamum has gravitated to this level in the church in Thyatira. It's full-blown. No attempt to hide it. No excuses of any kind. And this was a huge concern for Jesus who wants his church to be pure. I want you to know that this morning. Jesus wants his church to be pure. There's all kinds of references we could look at in the New Testament that teach us this. Let me just use one of them for you real quickly. And you don't even turn there just for the sake of time. I'm going to go in my Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read to you the first five verses. This is the Apostle Paul confronting the reality of sin in the church in Corinth, which was a messed up church, if you know anything about Corinth. It was a messed up church. It was filled with carnal people doing carnal things. But even Paul was shocked by this level of sin in the church. He writes in chapter 5 and says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And so in other words, there was a relationship of incest that was going on in the church. It was in full, in full view of everyone, not secret or hidden, in full view of everyone. And Paul says, and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I want you to know that's what's happening today right here across the street, we're assembled in the name of Jesus. He's a part of this. He says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be, des- be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul says, I can't, believe what, I can't believe what's happening in the church. I can't believe what you're tolerating in the church. And he says, take immediate steps right now to do something about it. And he said, hand this man over to Satan. Now, that sounds so harsh. That sounds so harsh, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why there are so many people in the world today who are so critical of Christians and so critical of the church because they think we're mean and we're harsh and we're judgmental. But this is the instruction of the Scripture, and what Jesus is saying is is you need to deal with this man's sin. You need to put him out of the church, not because we're looking for him to be eternally separated, but he wanted it to be a temporary separation. Put him out of the church. Maybe that will get his attention. Maybe if you do that, he'll come to his senses and realize that what he's involved in is wrong and repent and he can be restored. And all of this because Jesus wants his church to be pure. Jesus is not open to any level of toleration when it comes to sin in the local church, and yet it happens And it was happening in this church in Thyatira where there were believers. Listen, we're going to see this in just a minute. There were believers there who were openly participating in spiritual and physical adultery. And the other members knew that it was happening. And they tolerated it. And so Jesus writes them this letter. If you've got your Bible open to Revelation 2, go ahead and stand with me wherever you are. Here and across the street, wherever you might be like we always do, and let's read this letter together. Let's 
involve ourselves in the public reading of Scripture. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Stop right there for a moment. Look up here like we've done the last few weeks. Let's talk about this. This is Jesus who is the correspondent. No question about that. I told you in ancient days it was customary for a letter writer to identify himself in the introduction to the letter rather than in the conclusion like we do when we write letters today. And Jesus is making it clear that he's the one writing this letter because he begins by saying that he is the son of God. Now, what's the significance of that? The significance of that is is that this is a letter of great authority and Jesus wants them to know that he's authoritative. He says, I'm the son of God, which is his way of saying I am equal with God. God and I are one. This is God speaking to you. And then he goes on and he says, whose eyes are like blazing fire. And that just means that Jesus sees everything. That's just a a descriptive way of him saying saying that I see it all. I have got this burning laser-like vision and I see everything. And you might look good on the outside. You might have a good reputation among people in your community on the outside. You might have a good reputation among other churches. But I want you to know that I see everything. I see past the external and I see what's going on on the inside. And then he finished up that by saying, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And honestly, that's the terrifying part of his identification. Because when he says, my feet are like burnished bronze, he's saying, I'm here to stamp out this sin and this impurity in the church. I'm writing to you in judgment. This is not a letter that you want to receive from Jesus. So he is the correspondent. He goes on to say, I know your deeds your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And there it is. Those are the two issues. I told you, physical and spiritual adultery. Right there. He identifies it. He says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from the Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, there it is. You can be seated this morning. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's talk about the city of Thyatira for just a moment, just a brief moment. There's not a lot that I can say because it wasn't a real remarkable city except for this one thing that you have to know and you have to understand in order to understand the issue that's going on in this letter. The city of Thyatira was noted in history to be a place of numerous guilds, guilds, and guilds were the ancient equivalent of today's labor unions, and so there were numerous guilds that were like labor unions in the city of Thyatira. And a lot of the pressure faced by the Christians in the city came from those guilds in that if you were going to be a business owner or you were going to work, have a job, you needed to be a member of one of these guilds 
But here was the problem. Each one of these guilds had its own patron deity, or in other words, each one of these guilds worshipped their own false god. And they did that primarily through special feasts where they would eat meat sacrificed to idols. That was a no-no for believers. And they would participate in sexual immorality, and it would happen in the form of group orgies. I don't know what it was, folks, honestly, about these pagan religions in ancient days where they gravitated towards sexual expression and the worship of their false gods, but that's what happened. It was everywhere. And so the Christians in the city there in Thyatira would be faced with a difficult choice between participating in these guilds, these labor unions, these ancient labor unions, or losing their livelihood and their jobs. And the way they were handling this, the way some of the believers in Thyatira were handling this was of great concern to Jesus. We don't know anything about the church in Thyatira other than what's written in the letter that we just read. It had to have been started as a result of Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. Uh, Remember, the letter to the church in Ephesus was the very first letter we talked about. Look at these words on the screen from Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. This is Acts, the Acts account of Paul's time in, in Ephesus. He said, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, remember these churches were in Asia Minor, who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I guarantee you what happened. I guarantee you that either an associate of the Apostle Paul or someone who is a convert of the Apostle Paul traveled from Ephesus to the city of Thyatira and planted this church. That's really all we know about the church. Let's just dig into the letter. We're going to use the same basic outline we've been using each week. So write down next to number one. If you're taking notes, write down the commendation. The commendation. And look back at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus uses that same Greek word for know there that we've talked about in the past. It's the Greek word edo. He says, I know fully, completely. It's not a progressive knowledge. I know everything there is to know about you. And he says, I know your deeds. He says, I know the things you're involved in. And he divided them into four categories. He said, you're involved in love, faith, service, and perseverance. So first of all, they were a church that loved God and loved each other. That's a good thing. Secondly, they were a people of faith. The Greek word there is the word pistis for faith, and it's better translated as faithfulness. They were a faithful group of people. And then he said, he went on rather to commend them for their service and their perseverance. That's not surprising because those are the things that flow out of love and faith. And so here's what we understand about the church there. There was a core of believers in the church in Thyatira that were doing some really good things. There were a core of believers who were living out love and faithfulness and service and perseverance. Let me give you two quick observations, though, as a part of this commendation. The first one is this. Let's just acknowledge, folks. Let's just acknowledge together today. I hope I, I apologize if this sounds harsh to you. It's not my intent to sound harsh. But let's just acknowledge that in every church, in every generation, there's always been a mixture of true and false believers. Let's just acknowledge that. That's just always been the case. I'm not trying to be judgmental when I say that. I'm just talking about reality. You just go back and you read through Paul's New Testament letters to the churches and you can't not see that in every church he addressed, there were obviously people there who were not true believers. Their faith was not genuine. Now, this is just a reality, and and we know this because the Bible talks to us about how we know the reality of somebody's life by the fruit that they bear, and I'm sure that's true of this church as well. I'm sad to say that, but I'm sure it's true that there are true 
believers in our church, and there are false believers as well, and our hope is that false believers would come to a true belief in Jesus. The second thing that I want to observe from this commendation is that there's absolutely no mention in these words of commendation about sound doctrine in the church. It's a very brief commendation, just one verse, for a lengthy letter, and there's no mention of sound doctrine at all. You can see on the screen what I mean by sound doctrine. Doctrine is a word that we use to describe teaching or principles or truths that are essential to the Christian faith. And so here's what we need to know. You can be a church, listen, you can be a church that's marked by love and that's marked by faithfulness and that's marked by service and marked by perseverance, but if those things don't flow from principles of truth, if those things don't flow from biblical truth, then a lot of the time you're not that different from a lot of social service organizations. Why we do what we do is critical to us as believers. Why did we build our community ministry center back here a few years ago that feeds and clothes hundreds of people every week? Why did we throw a special needs prom for people with special needs? Why are we about to give hundreds of volunteer hours through Change the World Week to serve our neighbors across the street and around the world? Why are we participating in 10 mission trips this year as a church, many of which are involved in doing things like building houses and physical projects to help people in need? Why are we doing all of those things? It's because we understand the Bible teaches us that we serve God by serving other people. It's because we understand that the Bible teaches us to put the needs of others above ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The next verse, verse 4 goes on to say, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, Jesus is quoted in that verse of Scripture. Jesus is quoted as having said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. I could go on and on, but I hope you get the point. The Bible teaches us that why we do what we do is more important than what we do. And the why for us as Christians is our understanding of the Scriptures. That's why teaching the Bible, understanding the Bible, and the truth of the Scriptures matters. I don't want to belabor the point. But you can find churches today that love one another and that love people. You can find churches today that are faithful You can find churches today that are involved in works of service and that persevere through difficult times. But how many churches can you find today that are willing to confront sin and take a stand for biblical truth? And remember, that was the main problem that was going on in the church in Thyatira. I'm probably going to be misunderstood when I say this because it sounds so harsh. But there are too many Christians in too many churches today who have this attitude that says, well, I just think loving people and serving people and doing nice things is all that really matters. But Jesus wrote this letter, listen to me, because truth matters. As important as it is to love people and as important as it is to serve people and as important as it is to do good things, we can't lose sight of the fact that truth matters. Jesus commended this church for their love and their faithfulness and their service and their perseverance. But what about when someone is actively participating in or pursuing sinful things? What does the church do then? Does love and faithfulness and perseverance and service take the place of speaking the truth? Look at these words on the screen from Ephesians chapter 5. This is verses 1 and 2. Paul writes and says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave 
himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now look at those words. I love those words, don't you? Not only do I love those words, I want to live those words in my life. But that's not the only thing Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Look at the next verse, verse 3. He says, but among you there should not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper. Improper, he says, for God's holy people. Now, if we put verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 5 together, then what is Paul saying to us? How would we summarize it? Well, this is what he's saying. He's saying, love God, love people, but absolutely under no circumstances are you to tolerate sin. That's what he's saying. And that's what we've got to remember. So the church that comes along, listen. The church that comes along and says, in the face of someone's sinful choices, sinful actions, or sinful lifestyle, the church that comes along and says, oh, we're such a loving church, we don't want to deal with that. Or, oh, we're such a loving church, we don't want to make an issue of that. Or, we're just a loving church, there are other churches who can deal with that, but we're just going to love people. That's a church that is not embracing the complete truth of God's word. And it's as simple as that. And you know what Jesus would do with that church? He would come to them and he said, I can see you with my blazing eyes of fire. I see everything and my feet burnished with bronze. I'm coming in judgment. That's what he would say. Right down next to number two, the concern. And here it is. This is the heart of the letter, verses 20 through 23. After he commends them, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel See the word tolerate there? He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Stop right there. Honestly, I don't have time to go into a great deal of detail explaining this part of the passage, but let me just summarize it for you like this. The problem was there was someone in the church that Jesus identifies in verse 20 as a woman, and he calls her Jezebel. Listen to me. Look up here. This is a real person. Again, this is not symbolic or figurative writing. This is a real person person in the church. Jesus calls her Jezebel. She was in a position of influence, and she was teaching error. She was teaching heresy, and the rest of the church were tolerating it. They were allowing it to happen. She was knowingly leading people into sin, and the church was tolerating it. Now, I don't believe for a moment that her name was Jezebel. That wasn't her real name. Jesus uses the name Jezebel, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, because you know that Jezebel was the wicked, 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 wicked wife of a man named King Ahab, and you can read about him in First and Second Kings. You can read about him and her in First and Second Kings of the Old Testament. She was a foreigner that had married Ahab as a... As a uh, a political alliance, and she introduced the worship of false gods, and she introduced sexual immorality into the nation of Israel. That's the exact same things that were happening in the church in Thyatira. And so Jesus calls her Jezebel because that is a universally wicked name. Everybody understands that, right? I doubt when you were greeting one another today that anybody introduced themselves by saying, hi, my name is Jezebel. 
We don't have any baby Jezebels in the nursery this weekend. It's a universally wicked name, and Jesus is making a point here. He's making... I have no idea what her real name was. There's no way to know because we're not told in the Scripture. And I don't have any idea of exactly what she was teaching these people, the heresy that she was teaching, but I want to give you three possibilities. Three possibilities. I think it was probably one of these things. Now, this first one sounds like a mouthful, but you stay with me, okay? We'll put it on the screen so you can see it. First, it's possible that she brought into the church in Thyatira the philosophical dualism that was so prevalent in Greek philosophy. The philosophical dualism that was so prevalent in Greek philosophy. Let me put that in real simple terms. This philosophy of dualism taught that the spirit is good and the flesh is evil. The spirit is good and the flesh, or in other words, the body is evil. And so it taught that since God is only interested in the spirit, in spiritual things, what you do with the flesh, what you do with the body doesn't matter. So her teaching could have gone something like this. She could have said, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you commit sexual immorality. It doesn't matter if you involve yourselves in idolatry by eating food sacrificed to idols. Whatever, whatever you do physically, that doesn't matter as long as your spirit is good. And what she meant would mean by her, your spirit, as long as the things that you think about, the things that you feel, and the things that you value inside, as long as those things were good. And it could have been that that's what she was teaching. Now, this... This philosophy of dualism is still around. It's still prevalent today. It's just, it's just packaged in a different way. I can't tell you, and maybe you've had this experience as well. I can't tell you how many people I've met. And I'll start to have a conversation with them, like somebody I meet in an airport or on an airplane or something like that. And um, I, eventually, a lot of times, I'll ask them, I, if, are you a Christian? I'll ask them, you know, do you, are you a follower of Jesus? And, and a lot of times, I've had people say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian per se, but I am a very spiritual person. You ever heard anybody talk like that? I don't necessarily read or follow the Bible. I don't believe in everything that Jesus teaches, but I am a very spiritual person. But the meaning of spiritual is just who knows. And there are a lot of people who believe that today. That's a common thing in our culture today. Second thing she might have been teaching is a twisted view of grace, which was not uncommon in the church then and now. A twisted view of grace that was not uncommon in the church then and now. And the idea here is simple. God is the God of grace, right? Everyone say right. He's a God. Where would we be without his grace? We'd be lost completely, right? Every one of us here today, every one of you across the street, everyone listening online, we're all sinners saved by grace. Without grace, we're helpless and hopeless, all of us. But the idea here is since God is a God of grace, then you just do whatever you want. You sin to whatever level you want. You involve yourself in whatever level of willful disobedience that you want to be involved in. And just remember to ask for forgiveness because God's grace will cover you. And that's the idea here. That's something that's been around for a long time. That was prevalent in the New Testament church. That was prevalent in the, in, uh, among the Roman Christians. When Paul wrote the letter of Romans in chapter 6, he said, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means, he said. We died to sin, so how should we live in it any longer? And so Paul was saying, we, we don't, we don't, we don't em, embrace sin for the purpose of receiving more grace. We understand that we died to sin. We need to live holy lives. And it could have been that that was the false teaching that she was spreading. The third possibility was this, a rationalized view of evangelism, a rationalized view of evangelism. And that's the idea that if you really want to be a witness to lost and unsaved people, then, you know, don't judge them in any way as much as you can be just like them and gain a better level of influence. 
You know, that's why we see churches today that, you know, who don't, who don't preach the full counsel of God's word. Churches today and preachers today who just, they just have this, this kind of a reader's digest version of the Bible where everything is just all positive and, and all good. And, 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 and I'm going to get in trouble if I go much further. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and when somebody speaks up to criticize those churches, somebody will invariably say, well, yeah, but they're reaching a lot of people for Jesus. And my response is, but, but what Jesus are they reaching them for? The Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus that they've created? The middle-class Jesus that says, you're okay, I'm okay, let's just live and let live. What Jesus are they reaching them for? And it could have been that that was the false teaching. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was, but the one thing I know for sure is that it was really bad, and I know it was really bad because of the things Jesus says to them in this letter. Now listen, we all understand, the Bible teaches us, and simple life experience teaches us, that all of us, at any time, any of us can fall into sin. All of us have to keep our guard up all the time because none of us are perfect and none of us are above reproach. There's no one here today that you can point at and say, that person is never going to fall into any kind of sin. We understand that. But when you're in a church where someone is teaching, actually leading Christians into participating in or accepting things like immorality and idolatry, then that's incredibly serious And Jesus makes it clear how serious it is. He says in verse 21 that he's given this woman, Jezebel, time to repent. He says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she was unwilling. And so he he punishes her. We need to understand his words in verse 22 when he says, a bed of suffering. We need to understand that is death. That was her punishment. That would be her punishment. And he said that all those who continued to follow her and her teaching would suffer serious consequences as well if they refused to repent. And then look back at verse 23 because I want to explain the first part of verse 23 to you so you don't misunderstand it. In verse 23, he talks about this woman still and he says, I will strike her children dead. Now look up here at me because that sounds so bad. We're not talking about biological children in that verse. Everybody understand that? He's talking about spiritual children. So what Jesus is saying, if, if, if if there are second and third generation false teachers that come from this woman's influence, then they're going to be punished severely as well. And in the end, basically what Jesus reminds the believers of in Thyatira and he reminds us of in this letter is that all of us in the end, we reap what we sow. All of us, we reap what we sow. And that's why he writes there in verse 23, he said, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This is the concern and it is so, so serious. Right down next to number three, the words of the council. We see that in verses 24 and 25. In those verses, he says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have done or what you have, rather, until I come. Remember, there, were a, there was a core of true believers there. But they weren't completely innocent because they were tolerating the sinfulness of this woman that Jesus calls Jezebel. But basically, Jesus says, listen, what you've had to experience as a result of this heresy, this error, 
all this ugliness and this darkness that you've had experience, that's enough. I'm not gonna put anything on, extra on you, but he says, here's what you need to do. And this is Jesus' instruction to all the letters on some level. He says, you just need to be steadfast. You need to stay faithful. You need to hang on. You need to be faithful. Let me step away from the letter for just a moment and tell you something I think is important. Let me talk to you about something that's troubling to me that comes through in this letter because Jesus identifies the reality that this church was tolerating this woman that he calls Jezebel and what she was doing. We live in a time when a lot of people in the church preach a message of tolerance, and there are a lot of churches who preach a message of tolerance. We can see that in this letter. Andrew talked a little bit about that last week with the church in Pergamum. Um, We say today in our world that tolerance is a virtue, and there's a truthfulness to that in certain circumstances. But there is not any truth to it when it comes to sin in the life of a believer. There's none whatsoever. And so we need to understand that while none of us are perfect and all of us are fallen and all of us are frail and all of us are weak and all of us have made mistakes, we need to understand that that while the church needs to be a place for people like us, sinners like us, While the church needs to be a place that welcomes everyone and meets everyone at the point of their need, the church has also got to be a place where there's an uncompromising message of holiness and God's standard that is proclaimed that leads people to repentance. There's got to be that message in the church. We make a mistake if we think tolerance is a virtue that helps people who are involved in sinful choices and sinful lifestyles. So let me give you Three quick truths about tolerance, and I want you to write these down whether you've been taking notes or or not because these are important to remember. Tolerance, number one, tolerance is for people, not principles. Tolerance is for people, not principles. Here's what I mean by that. If you and I disagree about something, okay, you and I have a disagreement about something. Let's say that I think something is wrong and you think something is right, then tolerance needs to be the tone of our disagreement. What do I mean by that? That means I, 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 need to be, I need to be kind in the way I respond to you, even though we disagree, and I'm expecting you to be kind in the way you respond to me. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm not going to call you names. I'm not going to make it personal, and I'm going to expect you to give me the same courtesy in our disagreement. Tolerance is the tone of our disagreement, but here's the deal. We still have a disagreement, and that can't be ignored. Let's say you're an architect, and you design the greatest nicest, most incredible, state-of-the-art building that you've ever designed in your life. You turn those plans over to the construction company, and the construction company decides they're going to build that building on a foundation of sand. What are you going to do? You're going to confront them about that, aren't you? Because this is your name. This is your reputation. This is your livelihood that's at stake here. Now, you can be tolerant in the way you confront them. You can be kind and you can be gracious in the way you point out their error and you point out their mistake, but there's still an error and there's still a mistake, right? Tolerance is for people, not principles. If something is wrong, it's wrong, period. Second thing is this. Tolerance is for strangers and not for friends. That sounds so odd, but I want you to listen to me. Because I'm just being as personal and transparent as I can be right now. The closer I am to a person, and the greater the issue is that we're discussing, the more intense I'm going to be. And so here's the deal. 
there are certain things that I'm not going to be as tolerant with my family about as I'm going to be with strangers. And there are certain things that I'm not going to be as tolerant with my church about as I'm going to be with strangers. And here's the reason why. Because I love my family and I love my church. And I'm going to do everything that I can. I'm going to use everything that I am, everything that's available to me to protect my family and my church from error. Tolerance is for strangers more than it is for friends. And I've I've known people in church who were close to other people and knew that people that they loved and cared about were making bad choices and bad decisions but refused to ever speak into their life with regard to those things. Those are exactly the situations where we need to open up our mouths when it's people that are close to us. I'm not going to sit by and watch my son or my daughter do things that are going to be destructive to their lives. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. And I'm not going to do it to my church either. The third thing is this. Tolerance is for small issues, not big ones. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to be loud and I'm going to be intense about the big issues in life. I want to be kind. I want to be careful in what I say, but I want to be clear. You know, I worry sometimes, honestly. I worry sometimes about how I'm perceived by people who don't know me on a weekend like this. You know, if you're a first-time guest with us today, you know, you're going to go home and you think, man, that dude is intense. <laughs> but I am, re- I am really one of the funnest guys that you could ever meet. <laughs> I really am. I really am. But the bigger the issue, the more that's at stake. And my conscience will not allow me to not speak the truth. It just won't. Write down number four, the conclusion. And Brian, you can come and we'll bring this to an end. Verses 26 through 29, Jesus said, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. And he says, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus does the same thing that he does in the end of each letter. He gives a promise, and then he gives a, um, a reminder. Uh, the promise comes in the form of the words, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end. And he says, I'm going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. And number two, I'm going to give you the bright morning star. Now, I don't have time to go into detail, but let me just, the general application of the first promise, the authority promise, is that if, if, we, if we, we're not perfect, none of us, we won't be perfect as long as we live in this sinful, fallen world encased in sinful, fallen flesh. But if we can stay, be steadfast, if we can be obedient, if we can, we can persevere to the end, then we have this incredible promise of authority with Jesus one day. I think there's more to the promise than that, but time doesn't allow us to go into it. The second promise is this. Jesus says, I'll give you the bright morning star. I'm going to give you the bright and the morning star. Just identified as the morning star here in Revelation. There's no shortage of opinions from people about what that means, but I'm I'm telling you what I believe that it means, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. I believe Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the full, complete experience and expression of myself. And I say that because Jesus calls himself the morning star. And so I revert back to the old 
principle of interpreting the Bible that says when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. If Jesus calls himself the morning star and he says, I'm going to give you the morning star, then to me he's saying, I'm going to give you the full expression of myself. And I don't know that you and I in our finite lives can even, even, even understand the depth of how incredible that promise is. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And then Jesus gives us the reminder. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you know what Jesus is saying with that? He's saying, you better pay attention. You better listen. This is not a casual letter just to catch up. You better pay attention. Well, what do we take away from this? Well, here's what we take away from it. Number one, we can't tolerate unrepentant sin in the church. We just can't. You, because you can't, you can't involve yourself in unrepentant sin and not expect to experience the judgment of God. And so we can't tolerate it in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us are supposed to be like the spiritual secret service and we're supposed to go around and just be beating each other up all the time over everything that we think is wrong. But that does mean that when you are connected to someone who is a brother or sister in Christ and you know that they're making a wrong choice in their life, that they're going a wrong direction, in love, you speak to them about the truth of God's word. In love. And that means when we come together and open up our Bibles, we have to preach and teach the full counsel of God's word, not just the things that sound appealing. That means when we come, this is the, this is the big issue in our culture today, that we come, we need to talk about what God says about sexual immorality. That was a part of the problem in Thyatira. What God says about sexual immorality in the Bible is that any sexual expression that you're involved in in your life that takes place outside of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is sin. And I know, I know how difficult that is for some people to hear because emotionally, we don't think of it that way. And because we've got these reasons why it makes more sense for us to do it that way. But God says it's sin. It, that means it's not God's best plan for you. And sin always carries consequence. And we have to understand that. The second thing that we take away from this is just this, and I'll say it again, this incredible promise to people just like you and me, sinful people, sinful people like you and me. I know, I know myself better than anybody else does. I know how weak and how frail I am. I know the struggles that I have in my life, and yet Jesus says if you persevere, you can experience the fullness of who I am. And that to me, is incredible incentive to wake up every day and do the right thing. 